Hey there, it's Nikki Klosser, and I want to let you know about an awesome free giveaway for people on our email list. If you haven't already, click the link in our podcast description or go to theportraitsystem.com slash sign up to get on the list. If you sign up, you'll get a free Posing 101 PDF to jumpstart things. It's an epic PDF, so you'll definitely want to get this. Also, just by being in our email community, you'll get deals, sales, and information about any of our upcoming events and activities. So head over to theportraitsystem.com slash sign up and sign up today. You're listening to the Portrait System Podcast. I don't teach standard posing. What I teach is a way for people to recognize body shapes and sizes and learn how to put them together in a puzzle so that everybody looks good. Once you really start to get it, you'll never really question how to pose people. It really is seeing the bodies in terms of puzzle pieces, the shoulder as a puzzle piece, the head, the elbow, the knee. All of these different body parts are puzzle pieces in which you can start to build and create a full puzzle by putting all the pieces together. This is the Portrait System Podcast, a show that helps portrait photographers and people hoping to become one navigate the world of photography, business, money, and so much more. We totally keep it real. We share stories about the incredible ups and the very difficult downs when running a photography business. I'm your host, Nikki Klosser, and the point of this podcast is for you to learn actionable steps that you can take to grow your own business and also to feel inspired and empowered by the stories you hear. Today's guest is Michelle Salentano, and she truly is an amazing person and photographer. Not only does she do some incredible teaching during this episode, but she's also just so humble and open about her story, and I honestly could have talked with her for hours. Michelle is a Canon explorer of light who has done everything from cruise ship photography to weddings to now having a really successful portrait business, and one of her major superpowers is posing and photographing families. Chatting with Michelle left me feeling really uplifted, and I just know you're going to love her. So let's get started with her interview. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You're probably in sunny, warm Arizona right now. It is beautiful right now. We are past our ridiculous heat waves, and the mornings are in the 70s, and we're only getting into like the low 90s during the day, which is just bliss for us. (laughs) Only the low 90s. Yeah. My gosh. (laughs) Wow. I'm jealous. I love it. We're we're heading into fall, which is super beautiful and the leaves are changing and everything, but I just know winter's coming. So I'm like, Ugh. Yeah. I can't I can't do the snow. No. There's no shoveling snow in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. You're very lucky. Yes. Although I choose to live here, so I guess it's my <laughs> choice. <laughs> anyway, before we get started with just everything we're going to talk about. I want to just give a note to the listeners that you are one of my most favorite people I've ever met in the photography industry. You have always been so kind to me. And just like even before, you know, I worked with Sue or whatever, you were just always really nice. And that that's not always the case when you, you know, when you meet people who are of your like caliber of the industry. So I just want to say thank you for that, for always just being so genuine and kind to me. Well, thank you. That literally just made my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I made your day because you deserve to have your day made. I mean, truly, Thanks. you've just always been really nice to me. And yeah, I appreciate it. So you're welcome. Yeah. I think yeah. you're pretty awesome too. Yeah. Well, thank you. I do. Oh, thank you. Well, you've let's just have a love fest for the next hour. I know. I know. I'm like, forget everyone else. Let's go have cocktails at the bar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. So, you know, a lot of people who I interviewed didn't always start in the photography world. But I, from what I know about you, you've always been a photographer. Like this was your first career choice. Is that right? Or do I have that wrong? That is totally right. 
it's bizarre at 50 years old that I have had one long career in my life. And there have been times when I thought I might leave photography, but I picked up my first camera in high school. I actually kind of stole it out of my parents' closet while I was cutting out of school so I could photograph my boyfriend <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and, and then I started taking classes in high school. And then I went on to college, uh, community college, where I thought I would study political science and sociology. Quickly got bored with that, went back to photography classes at the community college, realized this really was my love. And it was the, they were the best grades I ever got in my life. I was not a great student. I was the daydreamer looking out the window, wondering what was going on in the rest of the world. And when I found, you know, really classes and education that I could follow, it, you know, became like a reality that I could become a professional photographer. And when the classes at the community college became limited, because they weren't meant to be career-driven classes, they were meant to be, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, side classes. I went on to a technical school, technical vocational school in New York City that was designed for fashion commercial photographers. And I got my, not necessarily a degree because I didn't offer degrees, but like certificate. It was like an 18 month program. And that's where it all started. Wow. Yeah. So once you finished that, did you just start up with portraits or did you, you know, like start charging right away? I mean, so, okay. Because you still have to build your business. It's like, yes, I have their certificate, but then you have to like build your business. You know, it's not like you just apply for a job or maybe you did apply for a job. Well, while I was in school, I worked for a local photography studio who did mostly weddings, and I also worked at a lab. So I was very used to the dark room, okay, yeah, chemistry, enlargers, everything that had to do with, you know, photography, and I worked at a studio. But once I was done with photography school, I kind of thought that I would go on to work for the studio and begin to shoot weddings and that kind of thing. But an opportunity came up to work on cruise ships as a cruise ship photographer. So right out of photography school, I packed my bags and boarded a cruise ship and worked there for 18 months. That is incredible. (laughs) Like that sounds like such a dreamy job, like on the cruise ship. It sounds like a beautiful dreamy job. And I would have to imagine that it's a little bit easier now, but back in the day, a hundred thousand years ago, coming on as a newcomer. And I was Probably, I was the only American photographer on the ship. It was a company out of England and most of the people they hired were European and there were lots of Australians and people from all over the world. I, when I got on board, they were like, you're American? And I was like, yeah. They're like, why would an American take this job? <laughs> it's kind of weird. But <laughs> I you know, got on board and in order to photograph 2,500 passengers at every single event during a seven-day cruise, which is more like a seven-day long wedding with events happening nonstop. Right. And watching everyone else on vacation having fun and you're just like, yeah. Well, I loved every minute of it, but (laughs) at night I spent hours bulk loading 35 millimeter film into you know, reusable canisters. Wow. And then we'd go out and we'd shoot every single event and, you know, thousands of people getting off the ship, coming out from dinner, formal night, captain shaking hands, everything you can possibly imagine. 
And then we'd take all that film, go back to the darkroom, process all that film, print all of those images on speculation. Oh my God. Then run up those images to the galleries in the passenger areas, put them on the walls and wait for people to come find their pictures and buy them. So it was nonstop work as opposed to now, you know, you get a little code for a card key where they can scan it and then you can go online and look at your images. So the workload is probably a quarter of what it used to be now. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And the most fun part really was we did formal night on the ship two nights a week. So there's two nights a week where you dress up in your formal wear, including us. We were also in formal wear as the photographers and we would shoot portraits on backgrounds with lights on medium format cameras. So we were shooting, you know, six by six square images, 220 rolls of film. And I would process that film while at sea in dip and dunk tanks. So if you don't know what a dip and dunk tank is. (laughs) No, high school. I had a class in high school. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I remember. And so like there are times we had rocky waters and I was in a dark black room loading rolls of 220 onto metal rolls and literally in my black formal dress dipping and dunking while singing Phantom of the Opera because that's how I kept myself entertained. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, tell for listeners who don't know what that is though, tell them what the dunk is or dunking. So dip and dunk is you would take your film in the dark. And you roll it onto these metal canisters. And then there's these like big kind of cage looking things where all these rolls go. And you have these square kind of big tubs of chemistry so that the the cage fits exactly into this tub. And they're like in a big sink. And so they're open. And so like you're literally like mm-hmm. dunking this cage of film in this big tank of sink of chemistry like the stop fluid or something. Is that, yeah, is that then, one? so yeah, there's yeah. your developer and then your stop and then, yeah. And so <laughs> in the dark while you're at sea and on, you know, times during stormy seas, you know, rocking around trying to keep your balance and not contaminate chemistry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I assume it's much, much different now. Much different. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you do that? I did it oh, 18 months and you're on board for basically like six months at a time. Okay. And it was the first time I left home. I was 19 going on 20 or 20 going on 21. And I thought my mother was going to have a complete meltdown that I was like leaving home for like six months to go work on cruise ships. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> and I loved it. And I actually think it was some of the best experience I could have had walking into the nonstop wedding world. It's, it's pressure. It's, a, you know, for some people at that time, and this is like 1991, 92, 1991, it's, you know, a dream vacation and they count on the photographers to, you know, get these images and they, you know, they buy them, but it's, it's one event after the other. And, and then it's, you know, the prep and the loading up the film and then the processing. And so it, it's amazing because you're dealing with tons of different personalities, tons of different people, different people's needs, posing all different kinds of people and, you know, working in a high pressure situation, which absolutely made me a better wedding photographer. So I really think that that was an incredible experience for me. Yeah, absolutely. And you seem like 
I'm going to take a wild guess here, a total extrovert. Like you love being around people, you know, you can talk to people easily. So it just, it seems like that's a, that was a really cool gig for you. And, but, but then you, you started a wedding photography business right after that, or did you do something else in between? Well, when I came home from cruise ships, I went back to work at the lab because, you know, I needed a job and the lab I worked at, his wife had left nursing and began photographing newborns and children before it was an actual thing. And so I started working for her, you know, managing her clients and her business and organization, stuff like that, and then working at the lab. And then I basically put myself out there to studios that I would shoot weddings. So a friend of mine had gotten married and I went to her wedding photographer and asked if he, you know, had any work. And so I started assisting other wedding photographers. And then at one point they were like, okay, you can go and shoot on your own. So I worked for other studios while working at the lab and for my friend, Susan. And once I started shooting for other studios, I loved it. I loved weddings the chaos of it all, the stress of it all, the personalities, I, it was my jam. Mm -hmm. And I was young and I was at that point, probably I was engaged to be married. And so, you know, when you're in that stage of life, it, it all sort of comes together for you. And I started then actually shooting on my own for a whole whopping $250 a wedding with no assistant (laughs) (laughs) with only like, I believe 10 rolls of 120 film. And that was all you wow. had. That was it. <laughs> wow. Okay. For those of you listening out there, and you, you know how successful Michelle is, she's a Canon Explorer of Light. She's a successful portrait business. Like everyone starts somewhere. Oh yeah. Everyone, no matter what. So I'm glad you shared that with us. <laughs> oh, and I say that to people all the time, you know, and I love showing my early work when I speak or to new photographers getting into the industry because- And and I felt this too, when I was new and just learning, and I would see these people who were super successful in their businesses. And I would sometimes get emotional feeling like, how am I ever going to get there? And, and so I think it's important to share where you came from and how you started. And yeah, I schlepped bags and, you know, carried bags and held lights and fluffed dresses. And I did all of that. And then once I got you know, you can imagine because you kind of know me. Once I got tired of being told what to do, (laughs) I was like, the heck with this. I'm going to start my own business. Mm -hmm. And that's basically how it started. And I had a portfolio because, you know, I had been shooting and then I would start taking my 35 millimeter with me, you know, on the jobs. And I'd bring this like what was starting to emerge as photojournalism back in 1993, 94, I'd bring these images that I shot in my 35 millimeter while I was doing the basically canned images that the studios wanted. They were high volume studios and they would look at me like I was crazy. And it was all like high speed black and white film. And they were like, this, this stuff's never going to sell. This is crap. And I was like, you're crazy. This is good stuff. Like grandma crying when she's holding the bride, like I would buy this. And so that's when I really started going off on my own. And I had lots of photojournalistic images and I was studying and I was taking workshops and I signed up for a bridal fair. And that's really where I got my start. Wow. I like what you just said there. You were studying and taking workshops. Like it's always about learning, learning, learning and growing and just getting better and better and better, regardless of where you're at in your career. It's so important. 
I can honestly say that that was absolutely hands down the best money I could have spent. And back in the 90s, a workshop was five days. It was Monday through Friday. And they were, you know, at these big resorts and there were 10, 15 instructors and every instructor had like 30 students. And it was like, summer camp for photographers. It was amazing. <laughs> right. And right. I studied with some of the same photographers multiple weeks, year after year, because I'd go for the first week and I'd be like in awe and just like, you know, and I'd get something that first week, but it's overwhelming five days. And then I'd go back another year and then another year. And one of my favorite comments mm-hmm. from one of my greatest mentors is Hanson Fong. And one year he said, Michelle, you've been here four times. This is enough. And I was like, no, there's always something more to learn. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and like you said, your brain can only consume so much. At least that's the kind of learner that I am. Right. I have a friend who we went to WPPI together a couple of times. And I remember the first year I, w- I spent half the time at the pool because I can only handle so much information before I'm tuned out and I'm not learning anything. Right. And she was like such a note taker. She took seriously like spiral books you know, spiral bound notebooks full of notes. And I was like, dude, that is just not how I learn, which is why I, I feel like I would have been the same. But back then I don't, they obviously didn't have the online options that we do now, which is something that I love about like Sue Bryce education is you can go at any time yeah, and learn and, and take snippets here and there. And okay, I'm ready for posing. Nope. I'm ready for self-value now lighting. And just like, of course there is something very, very valuable about an in-person, sure. you know, week-long workshop, but to have that option available now for the type of learner that I am is so, so priceless. It's amazing. And I can tell you, I spent a tremendous amount of my COVID time online learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I bought Felix's course and watched it and then watched again and Lara's course and, you know, some other, you know, educational platforms. And I was like, if I have to be home instead of planting myself in front of the TV, watching a bunch of series that I'm never going to remember, I'd really rather, you know, learn new things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's new techniques in in Photoshop or lighting for fashion photography, I don't really shoot fashion photography, but how can I incorporate that into my portraits? Yes. So it's important. It really is. And, and I know, again, a love fest about you, but I love how humble you are with it because you've got your own series on the Portrait Master store, the family <laughs> posing series. Like you're incredible. And you're like, yes. And I also bought some of the other series from other instructors because why not? Yeah. Like your superpower is clearly like family posing. Well, one of your superpowers is clearly family posing and it's such a good series, but I love that you're like, well, how can I incorporate other things, you know, into it? Yeah. It's so cool. I feel like Yeah. Once you get to a certain point in your industry, you know, people, a lot of people think, oh, they've arrived, you know? And Mm -hmm, it's like, mm -hmm. no, I'm still learning. I still want to grow in my craft. The second I think, yeah, I'm good here. I've got nothing else. Like I'm done. Like what's the point? (laughs) Totally. And also I feel like as an educator, if I'm not constantly educating myself, I have nothing new to bring to the table. And the reality is we all learn from each other and we take snippets from each other. We incorporate that into what we do. It becomes a little bit of a piece of our style. And then that's something new I can teach next year, you know, to be teaching the same thing year after year after year. I mean, there's basics, but you've got to come up with some new things that people want to continue to learn from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, And since I just mentioned your family posing series, will you tell us a little bit about it? 
gosh, that was like some of the most fun times of my life. (laughs) We spent two weeks in LA filming that and we photographed seven families live, which was incredible. And families with, you know, children from six months to grandparents, probably in their eighties. So we had every age group, every body size, every body shape from casual portraits to formal portraits. And you know, I teach the philosophy of posing bodies in a way that you can see them as a puzzle. So people ask me all the time, well, how, you know, how do you pose this one or that one? Or how do you pose two people of, you know, these different sizes? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't teach standard posing. What I teach is a way for people to recognize body shapes and sizes and learn how to put them together in a puzzle so that everybody looks good. And it takes time to learn that. But once you really start to get it, you'll never really question how to pose people. You'll never worry like an apple-shaped person or a pear-shaped person or a super tall man with a petite woman. How am I going to put those bodies together? It really is seeing the bodies in terms of puzzle pieces. The shoulder is a puzzle piece. The head is a puzzle piece. The elbow, the knee. All of these different body parts are puzzle pieces in which you can start to build and create a full puzzle by putting all the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. That you just described it so perfectly. I know your, the series helped me so, so much. I mean, photographing families is not my favorite to begin with. And just feeling the confidence of knowing that whatever family comes my way, I got this because right. I know how to pose them. And it, it really means a lot. And, and I mean, just posing in general, like we're doing, we have the 12 week startup. And when it comes to the posing week, I always tell people that, Yes, all of these things are important, lighting and pricing and self-value and all of that. But if you aren't confident in your posing, like as soon as I knew whoever walked through my door, I could pose them in a beautiful, flattering way that is like second nature. My confidence went through the roof. My clients could feel how confident, like their experience was so much better because no one, I mean, how many times do you hear people say, I hate being photographed. I don't know what to do. Where do I put my hands? What do I do? But if you are taking control and posing them confidently, they're going to tell their friends. They're going to tell everyone about you because it was, it's such a great experience for them. That really is the key thing. And I always say this about teaching group or family posing. It is the least glamorous education (laughs) genre, right? People, they're afraid of it. They're afraid of groups and Mm -hmm. they would rather learn how to pose one person or how to shoot fashion because yeah, it's, it's way easier to work with one person than it is to work with six people. And so people shy away from even wanting to learn that because it's terrifying. Like it really is. And not only are you dealing with six different body types, you're now dealing with six different personalities. Mm -hmm. And so I always feel like family posing and group posing is like the ugly stepchild of like education because people shy away from it because they think it's so difficult. But when you have a system in your head or a philosophy of, well, okay, here's where I put the taller, more broad-shouldered person. Here's where I would make an apple shape or a pear-shaped woman look good. Here's where I put a small child in order to maybe camouflage something mom doesn't want to show in portraits right now. Once you can see that, it becomes so much easier. And let's face it, for me, family portraits are bread and butter. 
And if you can do them well and better than anyone in your area, you're going to be busy. So it's, I think, one of the most important things to learn. If you can pose six, you can pose three. If you can pose six, you can pose 15. If you can do that, then one person is no problem. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So for people out there who are just struggling with posing families or whatever, I would definitely check it out on the portraitmasters.com for sure. So well, thanks. thank you for sharing that part of it. Okay. So that, I'm like back to your story. <laughs> All right. So weddings. So you were charging $250. How long did it, how long did it last charging $250? Well, no, actually. So, okay. So this is a great story. So I was getting paid 250 from other studios Okay. For, you know, full day. Yeah. And so when I decided to go out on my own, I was always of the philosophy of a la carte pricing, even for weddings. Packages just for me never seemed to make sense, especially purchasing a package a year, two years out from a wedding. How are you possibly going to know what you want? So my philosophy always was kind of like a session fee for portrait photographers. I will charge a fee for my day, for my time, and then once you see your images, there are X amount of dollars per image to put in an album. You pick how many images, do the math, that's the price of your album. So if it was, let's just say at the time, $25 an image in the album, you have 100 images, you have a $2,500 album. Super easy. It made buying for the wedding client really like logical. So when I left shooting for other studios, I thought, well, I'm going to charge $500 a day because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. double my price. And so my original day fee for shooting weddings, and I was always like, you have me for the day. It's not like I'm going to go shoot two weddings on one day. So I never kind of did it by the hour. It's like, you get my, you get me for the whole day. It doesn't matter how much time. So 500 for the day. And then at that time, I believe it was 25, an image in the album. And it made sense to people. They could just pay me for the day. And what I did was I figured out exactly what I needed to make for the year and how many weddings I needed to do that in. And so if I needed to make, I will make it easy math. If I needed to make $50,000 that year, and I wanted to do that in 10 weddings, you know, I would break it down and figure out. So my starting rate was 500. And I figured when I got to 30 weddings, I would raise it to 750. And everything after that for the year, well, that was gravy. And so, you know, the first couple of years, once I hit that 30 wedding mark, I raised it to 750. The following year, I really only needed to do 28 weddings to make my number. So once I got to 28 and I knew I had financially, I was like, okay, I got the year set up. I went to $1,000 for my day rate. And the following year, I only needed 25 weddings to get to my financial goal for the year. And then I went to 1250. And by the time that started in 1994, by the time I moved from New York to Phoenix in 2002, my day rate was $4,000. Nice. (laughs) Now, if you could go back, Michelle, would you just start at a higher rate? Or do you feel like your skills reflected as you built your business? You know what I mean? Like as you got better or like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think at the time, my rate was, again, like 1993, 94, my rate was actually pretty good because if a client came in and they paid me 500 for the day, and then they ordered an album with, you know, 100 images, which I was really good at because I would pre-design albums. I was a proofless wedding photographer before proofless was even like a word. I did every, I would scan my negatives 
using this machine called a Photovix, which was basically a video camera that connected to a light box that connected to a VHS recorder. Oh my and, God. Yeah. <laughs> We're so lucky now. <laughs> so lucky. So it would take me probably about five hours to prepare a wedding for the client. And album design software was super, super new back then. Art Leather, God, I don't even know if you remember this company. Art Leather had designed back then like this rudimentary album design software. And so I would start pre-designing albums for people and it had never been done. So I could easily in 1994 get 500 for the day and 2,500 for an album. So $3,000 for a wedding in 1994 was a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. So I was already really appropriately priced for myself at the time, knowing that my sales skills were really good on the back end and pre-designing albums instead of, you know, people at that time were used to, okay, you get 30 eight by tens in an album. Like people were still doing that. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to come along and design albums and show you what something beautiful could look like and tell your story while incorporating photojournalism, which no one else at the time was doing. Uh So I was still shooting medium format and photojournalism and then designing albums. And so I actually started higher than most people in my position would have felt comfortable. And this was the best advice that had ever been given to me. And this was given to me by my friend, Susan, who I still work for part-time. We actually ended up sharing studio space and I worked for her in her business, you know, managing her clients and children's portraits and newborns. And then at night I flipped her studio over and put out all my wedding work and I would see wedding clients at night. And she gave me the advice of, don't charge what you think you're worth right now. You need to be at an industry standard because you will undercut other photographers, which is never a good thing. And you will have a harder time raising your prices when you get to the place where you, you feel your work is worth the price. Right. You will have a very hard time turning these clients over to a higher price point because they're already used to this price point. So charge more than you feel like you're worth right now because your level of expertise and your work will increase faster than you could possibly increase your prices. And so start higher. Yes, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And we talk about pricing, obviously, a lot on SBE. And Sue just really hammers this in about being at industry standard. I'm curious what you think about this. Because, I mean, there are a ton of photographers out there. Every city, everyone's always like, oh, I, I can't charge more because... My city is saturated with shoot and burn photographers who are charging next to nothing. How do I compete with that? So what are your thoughts around that? When you've got, yes, you don't want to be the photographer that's undercutting, but what if so many people are charging less now that you're the one that's charging more? You know, what are your thoughts around that? Because I I feel like that is a huge block for people that like, you know, Joey down the street is only charging 150 bucks for headshots out the door. Sure where I'm starting, you can't, you can't come get headshots with me for under a thousand dollars with including the session fee. You know what I mean? So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. I think it's a psychological mess with your brain thing. I was going to use like my New York foul language, but I held myself back, Nikki. Mine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mine. It totally is. Okay, great. I'm glad we can go there. And I think what we have to do is ignore what is going on around you. You are not competing with the shoot and burn photographer. And you have to 
analyze and discover for yourself what you want your business to be in not a comparison way. You have to decide how much money do I need to make from this business in order to be sustainable? How many clients a year do I want to do that in? What is good industry standard pricing that I should at least start at so that I can build on that? So basing your prices on what everyone else in your community is doing is is crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, because you you can't compete at that level. But what you want to do is structure your business so that it works for your life, for your financial needs, for your family, for sending your kids to college, for your retirement, for your vacations, to have a sustainable business and figure out how much work do you want to do every year? How many clients do you want to take on? Do you want to have five clients a week? Do you want to have three clients a week. Do you want to have a client a month? You could have one client a month and you know, that's a $20,000 client and you only need one of those a month. You don't need 10 of them. So it's like to compare yourself to shoot and burn is, is that first of all, the business model that you would even want to have? It's not. And then build the value into that pricing. And that's where you really get down to what makes you worth it. What makes your prices worth it? Have you built the value into the prices that you actually need to charge and want to charge. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. the shoot and burn photographer, there are very little value built into that price. They can't, they can't supply the value and the customer service because in order to maintain a business at those rates, they need a much higher volume. And so let them go. There's always going to be the person who wants it cheap and fast And there's always going to be the percentage of people who want it better with more customer service, more handholding, and are willing to pay a higher price for it. Mm -hmm. It's so true. I recently photographed a big office and I gave them my pricing and they said yes. And then they came back and said, it was like a week before the shoot. And they said, no, they said our bosses just, they don't want to pay it. And I said, that's fine. That's fine. But I was just, wasn't willing to go lower than that. Sure. For every reason that you just said, my time, the value of what I do, that was fine with me. So then they came back the next day and said, all right, we've convinced them that it's worth it because they had had previous photo shoots before with the office. Everyone dreads it. Everyone hates it. And they hate the photos. And then it's just, it just is not a good experience. And so they finally convinced the bosses to do that. And it was great. They had such a great experience. They were like, this was amazing. Thank you so much. And You know, it is. It's one of those things. You have to be the photographer that provides the service that people will pay for. That's the end of story. And there's going to be people out there who value you. And I think part of that mind is when people say no to you, you feel like they're personally rejecting you and you have to get away from that. Mm -hmm. You really have to find your own value and think there is the client for me. You know, it's kind of like dating. I mean, in a way, right? Like (laughs) you don't want to date everybody and you don't want everybody to like really want to date you. (laughs) It's like, yeah. Cause then you're like pushing them away with a stick. Get away, you know, (laughs) you you only want to go out with like the really good dates. So you really only want the really good clients who will value you and who will see your worth and who will appreciate that kind of service. And that's, that's, what's most important. And really sometimes you have to put the blinders on because we all get wrapped up in the comparison and the competition 
And until you put those blinders on and you 100% laser focus on what you need to do for your business and for your life and how am I going to make this happen without seeing what's going on around you, that's the only way you can move forward without being fearful of, am I charging too much? Am I going to lose business? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? You just have to be laser focused and go after the clients you want that will value what you do. Totally, totally. And if, you know, for people out there where it's like hard to put your pricing up and you're just not sure how to do it, you know, if you've had that low pricing for a long time, there's a video called Your First Package Price on SBE where Sue explains exactly how to do it and and talking about bringing old clients with you and just making that shift. Right. Like easier, you know, so that it's not so like, oh, uh, like scary. And how am I going to do this? And yeah, so just just a plug for that video because it's a good one. It's terrifying. Yeah. In in my area, I mean, I'm like everyone else. And it's funny because people are like, oh, she's an explorer of light. She's a speaker. She must have it so easy. Uh, nobody cares, right? Like outside the industry, <laughs> nobody cares. So I work just as hard as everyone else to, you know, build my business, market, all of that. And there's mm-hmm. other female photographers in my area. And I don't, maybe about a year ago, I was like, this is so dumb. Like we should all be friends and we should all be helping each other. And so mm-hmm. I put this group together and there's probably about at least 10 of us. And there's two women actually right in my, three women in my neighborhood who I am very friendly with. We see each other a lot. They're building their businesses. And I literally sat down with them and I was like, girls, you're not going to make any money like this. Let's talk pricing. And I revamped all of their pricing for them. And they were scared. They're like, Michelle, how do I justify this? I'm like, you don't need to. Like, look at what industry standard is. Do you want to make a profit in this business? And how can I help you do it? And, you know, I understand, and you probably know this in your community as well, because you're well-known throughout the industry. People in your community are scared of you. Mm, mm -hmm, (laughs) And they're mm -hmm. afraid to ask questions of you. And they think you're, oh, you're there. I, I could never be there. And I think it's up to us to bring that community in. Even the the people who are right next door to you. If you lift up the people right next door to you, you lift up the entire industry and then the the consumer starts to realize that this is what professional photography costs. Yes. Now it's not an issue of price. It's an issue of finding the person you want to work with. Absolutely. There's a photographer who I actually interviewed, Emma. Yes, I heard that one. That was so good. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Number 26. Yeah, her studio is like, I could throw a stone and hit her studio. Yeah. And we we do, we, you have to elevate each other. It's like, there are enough clients for all of us. And like you said, if we are educating and lifting up other people around us, then it's just going to become expected that I'm going to pay X amount for photos. Right. You know, it's it's just, we have to be the ones to do that. And and then if you are the dick that comes and, you know, undercuts everyone, then that's on you. Sure. <laughs> but if we can just as a whole, just rise up to it and, and value what we do and value our time. It's just better for all of us. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And it's so funny too, because the three of us were sitting and I'm going over their pricing. I'm like, no. And they're like, I don't know how I'm like, you know, you're just going to do it. Like, and, and you're going to, your skill level is going to rise to meet these prices so fast. And then I said to them, I said, okay, we live in a, a small, it's basically kind of a small community. I'm like, there's 30,000 homes here. And something that we just took on recently, 
school portraits, right? And so Mm -hmm. let me think, there's at least four K through eight schools in my community that each have a thousand children. Okay. That's 4,000 children. (laughs) And then there's a K through 12 school that has another thousand children. So that's 5,000. And then we have a high school with 2,500 children. I think I said that right. And so I said to them, do you realize that there's 7,500 kids in this community? Now, even if they're two family, two kid households, so 7,500, we're like, okay, let's say there's 4,000 families. Can you do 4,000 families a year? Can I do 4,000 families a year? There's enough for everyone. Like, that's why we need to come together as a community. I could not even possibly fathom photographing that many families. Exactly. My goal is 40, 50 families a year. Like, that's not even, that's like less than 10%. (laughs) No, it's 1%. Yeah, yeah. What I want to shoot every year at my sales average is 100 people. I mean, literally 100 sessions. I mean, I can find 100 people. Right. You know, it's just, when you look at it like that, it's like, oh, I can find a hundred people that would want to book me. Sure. It's just such a simple way to look at it. And it doesn't feel so overwhelming and scary and daunting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I don't know. It's, it's what I've always believed in, in the industry. I get very emotional when I talk about the, my mentors and I'm going to get emotional. Crap. Do it. Sorry. Anything goes on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I love. And really- There are so many people who lifted me up early in my career and helped me to the place that I am Mm -hmm. today. And it's my job and responsibility as a human and as a photographer and as a leader in my industry to do the same for others, to not be closed off and, you know, feel that I'm better than I'm not. I started in exactly the same place so many people start and- you know, you start actually by going, wow, I love photography. I'm pretty good at this. And then you take a class and you go, holy shit, I suck at this. (laughs) (laughs) And then you start getting acquainted with people's work that you really like and admire and your confidence tanks because you feel like, oh my God, I'm never going to be that. And no, you're never going to be that. You want to be you. But as a person who feels like I benefited from teachers and mentors and people who are willing to give to me to, for me to have, I mean, I'm going on 33 year career. It's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. 33 years is such a long, amazing career. I mean, it's, when you think about teacher, they spend 30 years and then they retire or whatever. Like you're still going strong. Yeah. And, and it seems like you don't do weddings anymore, right? You're strictly f- like family, just in-studio yeah. portraits, beauty <laughs> portraits, family portraits, seniors, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no more weddings for me. My, I'm, yeah, no. <laughs> Why is that? I'm curious. I feel like over the years, my photography and my genres have changed with where I am in my life. So you know, I moved from Phoenix. My daughter was born in 2001, just before 9-11. And it was right after that, we decided to make the move to Phoenix. And part of it was putting some distance between my only child and my mother's only grandchild, (laughs) my mother and her only grandchild. Right, right. It was ready for a change. And at the time, online wedding services had become pretty good at 
pictage, you know, people could pick their pictures online. So I could still Mm -hmm. photograph weddings in New York. I still had connections there. I could fly home, stay with my mom, come back to Phoenix and do everything remotely. But once I got here and my daughter was, you know, a year, 18 months, well, then little kids really started to capture my heart. Whereas I thought I had no patience for those little people (laughs) prior to that. I was like, I love brides. I don't want to deal with kids. And I moved to a master plan community that was designed for families, children, and there wasn't really a lot of weddings here. And Arizona weddings also became insanely boring to me. I was used to very high-end New York City weddings, big hotels, big budgets, you know, $30,000 dresses, $100,000 florist bills, you know, crazy, crazy weddings. And here it was a wedding on the golf course at sunset at five and people ate dinner without music and I was home by nine. And I was like, Uh this is stupid. (laughs) Same, same wedding, different people every time. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, I hate this. Yeah. And so I started photographing children, asking, you know, all my neighbors who had kids and everybody who would lend me a child. I started photographing children. Everyone who would lend me a child. (laughs) Started marketing for it. And it grew really quickly because it was a new community. I was the only photographer at the time. And my portrait business grew faster than I could handle. And I wasn't used to that kind of volume because I'd been doing weddings. So my first year in business as a portrait photographer was a nightmare. And I actually had to bring in a business consultant and an organizer and and someone to help me put systems into place. And I had to come up with products because I was shooting family portraits, like I shot a wedding and I was showing clients 150 images from a portrait session. And they walked out with no sale because there was no direction. They didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. It was a nightmare. So it was starting a business all over again, which was so different from weddings. And it probably took me two years to get my feet underneath me and figure out products to offer, systems to put in place, managing, you know, 200, 300 clients a year as opposed to 30 clients a year. You know, we did in-studio sessions of little ballerinas and little firefighters and little baseball. Like we did all kinds of things. The studio was really busy. I did newborns, children, families, everything. And it was a lot. I had two full-time employees working for me at the time and it was a lot, but I loved it. And I was just really kind of done with weddings. And another thing with weddings is, and I say this all the time, a funny thing happens on the way to divorce court. Weddings are not so fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So you went from being engaged to loving it to divorcing, not loving yeah. it. Yeah. I knew I was done with weddings when I was standing at the back of the church one day. And instead of getting all weepy eyed like I usually did, I was like, oh, you should have just saved this money and invested in real estate. You just wait 10 years. And then I literally shook my head at the back of the church and was like, okay, you need to step back from this. This is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yes. Isn't that funny? Yep. Yeah. Wow. And so my, like I said, my business grew from there and then family portraits. And, and so I did a few weddings only by like really strong referral and friends of a friend. And then it was really funny. I'm a little bit of a gym rat. And during my period of like, I'm not really sure I want to do photography anymore. I became a certified personal trainer. I was working part-time at a gym and another trainer who worked with me. I didn't know her very well. But her son was getting married and the people she worked with at the gym had been invited to an event the week before the wedding, just to like as a congratulations pre-wedding party for those who weren't actually invited. Well, the following Friday, 
after the week before party, I get a phone call at three o'clock in the afternoon from Terry, the bride's mother, who I worked with at the gym, saying, hey, Michelle, it's uh, it's Terry from the gym. And um, well, you know, Nathan's wedding is tomorrow. And we just found out that the photographer has Mercer and can't shoot the wedding. Do you happen to know anybody you might be able to recommend to us? Oh, no. <laughs> You're like, shit, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I was like, um, what time is she getting dressed tomorrow? And she's like, well, she'll be getting dressed at our house at about two. And I said, I'll see you at two o'clock tomorrow. And it was so funny because when I got there, a, a couple of the guests came over and they said, and this is really funny, we don't wish anybody to be sick, but it was a friend of hers from college and her getting sick was the best thing that could have happened to them. I can't believe they got you for their wedding photographer. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I yeah, it was it. funny. And so Terry and I have since then become, she's one of my greatest friends. And when her daughter got married five years ago, she's like, Michelle, no one else can shoot Bethany's wedding. And I was like, Terry, I don't really want to do this anymore. And like, there are people who are better than me now. <laughs> So I brought in a friend from California to second shoot with me. And so now she has one more child and I'm praying they're not going to ask me. You're like, please, no. You're allowed to say no, though. Yeah. You are 50 now. I feel like getting, you know, learning to say no in my 40s has been real, like real nice. I'm, I'm assuming when I'm a 50, I'm going to be like, no. Oh, I'm no. telling you, <laughs> if you're loving your 40s, you just wait till 50. 50 is oh, probably wait. the most liberating self-confident, like I can just say F you to anybody and oh, I, I'm I fine it. with it. Yeah. I'm fine <laughs> with it. Like I don't, I, I've gotten to a stage in life where I don't need other people's approval. I don't need other people to like me. If I, if I don't want to, if I, I have a limited amount of time in my life. And when you're younger, you try to please everybody. And at this point, I'm like, if, if you're not really adding something valuable to my life, I can't, I can't spend time with you. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the good news is people like you. So it's not like, you know, you're someone that's like unlikable. So well, you're thanks. a lot, you know, yeah. but anyway, yeah, I know I'm with you. I'm with you so much on that where my time is so limited and, and it's, it's hard enough to find enough time or just to prioritize enough time for the most important people in my life. And saying no has become way easier. It just, yeah. yeah. And you have two young ones. It makes it even harder. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, how old are you now? 43. 43. Yeah. You're still young, but your kids are yeah. young. Oh yeah. They're yeah, two and so, four. Yeah. They're, you have babies at home. So it, that, that's time consuming. And yeah. So I'm 50 now and Anna is turning 20 in February. And so we're, we're pretty child free. So we're, we're not in that place in our life. We're empty nesters and it, there's something really freeing about that. You'll get there. I promise. <laughs> like the chaos of childhood. Yeah. I mean, I waited a long time to have kids and that was purposeful. And yeah. when I look at my friends now though, who had kids much younger than me, they are reaching the point where their kids are in high school now and, you know, middle school, it's just getting, I mean, I know there are challenges with teenagers and everything, but it's funny. That's what they, they're like, don't worry, you'll get there to the point where I'm not like watching to make sure my two-year-old doesn't jump off the boat and like, you know, yeah. eat rocks. And it's interesting because my friend, Susan, who I mentioned earlier, who was the children portrait photographer, she had her first at the age of 40 and her second at the age of 44. And so all the years we spent together sharing studio space, those kids were my first kids. And so 
Her son, Russell, got married last year, and her daughter, Emily, who was actually born on my 25th birthday, is getting married in two weeks in New Jersey, and we're going back for her wedding, small wedding. They've already, like, asked us about our comfortability with social distancing, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's incredible because she had her children later in life, and she was absolutely the most powerful role model of what motherhood should look like. And I think it was because she was a mom who waited and had children when she was older. And she had a different kind of wisdom and patience with them that I had not seen from anyone else. And so she was like probably my most valuable role model when it comes to what motherhood and how to treat your children should look like. So I think you're at an advantage than younger moms. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think so too. I don't I don't quite have the patience I wish I did. That's something that I am 100% working on. My husband's much more patient than me. Well, I guess it depends on the day. I'm getting way better with it now that I've been conscious about it. But the wisdom part of it, I feel like I feel like I have so much more wisdom now than I did in my 20s and yeah. Yeah, I, I really hope that I'm able to pass all of the, the things on that I've learned to my kids and they'll have their own growing process and learning process and take, you know, take whatever they choose to from what I teach them, but yeah, it does. It feels good. It does, for sure. Yeah. I'm in a good place. Definitely. I always kind of think older moms have an advantage, a a more life experience that you bring to the table as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes, it goes both ways. I think about, you know, as a younger mom, I might've been more like, I don't know, willing to, to like, not that I want to say I'm like a bad mom or anything, but you know, like get down on the floor and playing cars and this and that and zoom, zoom, zoom. Like, I'm like oh my God, like, ah, Dan, do you want to take over? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I would have done certain things better as a younger mom than I do, you know, as an older mom, but I don't yeah. know. I don't think it's better or worse. I think it's just different. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, well, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but. I could talk to you forever. I love talking to you. I know. I love talking to you too. I have questions that I ask everyone at the end and we need to get to those if that's all right with you. Oh yeah. I'm prepared because I've heard them. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) So number one, what is the one thing you can't live without when you're doing a photo shoot? Oh my gosh. I know. I I keep, and I've been thinking about this since I knew we were doing this. I'm like, hmm. Now, are you asking like equipment wise or just in general? Either anything, anything you want. Yeah. So I really think my tripod because it's probably the most valuable tool as a family portrait photographer. And I'm not speaking from like, if you're a lifestyle family photographer and you do more of a journalistic feel, but from more of a Mm -hmm. opposed family portrait perspective, it's such a time saver that for me, that tripod is really an important piece of equipment that I, I could live without, but I really don't want to. Yeah. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. That crossed my mind because I know you really love shooting with a tripod and you've opened my eyes to the whole, to shooting with a tripod too. Yeah. It frees you. It frees you completely. It it allows you to connect with your client because the camera's not in front of your face. It frees your hands up to do more directing. It gives you the ability to kind of run back and forth without having to recompose and, you know, lift your camera up and get everything set again. So yeah, it's a time saver really. Yeah. And if, if you have Michelle's family posing series, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Number two, how do you spend your time when you're not working? Okay. So yeah, I, was, I actually thought of this at the gym this morning because I knew we were talking today. So I love the gym and I got home today and it's been a while since I've been at the gym regularly because of COVID. 
And so I've been back this week and it's reopened and, you know, obviously everything's super cautious and there's areas where you have to have your mask on and all the equipment is separated. But I did not realize how much I missed it until I got home uh, today. And I was like, I said to my husband, I'm like, I, 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 I can't live without the gym. Like, so I love the gym. I love to run. I we love hiking. This year we bought a travel trailer, which I never thought in my lifetime I would have bought. Oh, fun. Yeah. So we love just, well, Paul introduced me, my husband, to camping this year, thanks to COVID again, because he came home from work one day. He's a firefighter. He works two days on, four days off. And he came home from work and I have never camped a day in my life. I am a concrete Brooklyn raised girl, like concrete jungle (laughs) girl. Uh And so he comes home one day. I'm like, we need to go camping. He's like, what? I was like, we need to go camping now, today. Like, I have to get out of this house. I I can't stand this anymore. (laughs) He's like, I've been asking you to camp for 10 years. I'm like, (laughs) today is the day. (laughs) So it's done. Yeah. So we went from a tent to a trailer, which is awesome because you can just hook it up and go anywhere. I like to go up to Sedona. There's a beautiful campsite up there and I love to hike in Sedona. I'm a reader. There's always like three books going for me at one time. I love to cook friends. So yeah, all of that. Awesome. Remind me, I have to ask you about, I want to take a girl's weekend to Arizona and I need to find out where to go. So I'll have to ask you after our- Oh my gosh. Well, first stop is my house. We'll have a girl's night. I know. (laughs) That'll probably be the best stop. (laughs) Yes. We'll cook and we have lots of wine in the fridge and then we'll take a ride up to Sedona. There you go. I love it. Okay. Number three, what's your favorite inspirational quote? I've been working on this book for my daughter where I write all of my favorite lyrics to my favorite songs, my favorite quotes. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And I don't know when I'm going to give it to her because it's a work in progress, but I've been working on that for years and there's tons and tons of my favorite quotes in there and songs. And okay. So there's a couple I have. I mean, I'm very musical and I love music and I love lyrics and I love quotes. But one of my favorites is, do not judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. That's Nelson Mandela, which is just mm. one of my favorites. And, and I think it's, that's really important because so many people feel like they can judge you on your successes and they don't actually see all the times you fell down and had to have gotten back up. Yeah. I think some people tend to think that success comes easier to some than others. And I don't think that's true. So, you know, when you are at a certain place, it looks easy. Like, you know, I watch figure skaters and I think, my God, they're so graceful. And you forget to think about how many years of hard work and training go into that, but they made it look so easy, but they fell down a million times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my husband and I were just talking about this the other day because we started investing in real estate and then, you know, with the photography business and everything. And and I said, you know what, Dan, I said, it kills me because anyone could be doing this, starting a business or investing in real estate, or, you know, it's not like we had a ton of money or I have this, any special skills or there's nothing special about me that allows me to do this. And he was like, what are you talking about? You're so special. And I'm like, that's because you're married to me and you love me. But honestly, Anyone can do this. The only difference between me and someone not doing it is that I'm doing it. Right. I mean, truly, like that is the only difference is that I'm taking the steps towards it. I'm practicing, I'm learning, and I'm doing it. There's nothing special about me that allows me to have these like magical skills to grow a business or to purchase real estate or to, you know, get a studio or whatever. It's just that I'm I'm doing it. You know what I mean? 
Well, I think what's special about you is that you don't let fear rule your decisions or where you want to go. And that is a superpower because most people can be literally mm-hmm. ruled by fear and it stops them from doing things. So I think he's right in saying that you are very special because you take risks and you don't allow fear to get in the way of doing what you want to do. But don't you think that anyone can do that if you just do it? Yeah. Yeah. You have to make a decision to do it. Yeah, it's, it is. It's making that decision that I'm not okay with unhappiness. Like I was not okay with the unhappiness of being a social worker. I was not okay with that. But unfortunately, people stay in that unhappiness. And, you know, I know everyone has different situations and some people are afforded more opportunities than others, 100%. I don't know. I just want to encourage people to know that exactly what you said, when someone is successful, it's because they started doing it. They worked for it and they took it one step at a time. It wasn't just this overnight, now I'm magically, you know, successful. Right. And they fell down a whole lot of times. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So anyway, that was a total side note, but. (laughs) No, it's good. I love side notes. Yeah. Okay. So number four is what would you say to people who are just getting started? I kind of think we, we covered that, right? Like you're just getting started. Don't undercut yourself. Don't start your pricing super cheap just so that you can get people in the door. That is the biggest mistake most photographers make. And first really make a plan. I mean, sit down and financially figure out what this business needs to do for you. And, you know, and a lot of people who picked up a camera and their neighbor said, wow, you take great pictures. Hey, can you photograph my kids? They ended up with a business they didn't plan for. And no framework was put into place on how to actually create this business, how to make it profitable. They ended up with a business. A lot of people did. They ended up with a business they didn't know they started. And so I think just taking the time to sit down and map out what it is that you really want, how much money do you really want to make every year, figure out what all of your expenses are, everything that you have to pay out, whether that be your mortgage, your nail appointment, your you know, your hair extensions, I don't care, put it all on paper, figure out exactly what it is that you need to make to live the life you want to live. And then break that down to how much you want to work. And then how much per job you need to make to make that happen. And then start basing your prices off of that, not just picking up the brochure from the lab and seeing that an eight by 10 is $2 and 50 cents. And if you charge $15 for an eight by 10, you have like 2000% profit. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) It does not work like that. And that's how a lot of people start their pricing. They look at their lab costs and base their prices on that when that's just a piece of paper. It's $2 and 50 cents for a blank piece of paper. I'll be happy to sell you a $2 and 50 cent piece of blank paper But if you want the image on that paper, well, that's going to be like $186.25. It's like whatever it is. Right. Totally. Yep. Yep. I love that. So I, I really think that's the main thing is coming up with a plan, figuring out what it is you want, how much you need to support that life, how many clients you want to do it in, and then stick to it and, and stick to your, your policies. And that, that's one of the most fatal things that people do 
when they start a business is they create prices and they create policies. And then the first person that comes along to push those policies and prices, they cave. And as soon as you cave, you're lost. Like that client is going to tell another client and that client's going to tell another client. Well, if you push them, you know, they'll, they'll drop their price for you. And that is the last thing you want to do. So once you decide and you make your prices and you set your business policies and how you're going to run your business, you have to stick to it, even when it's scary. And even when someone says, are you crazy for charging that? You have to be out of your mind. Who do you think you are? (laughs) That's the first time you're going to be like, oh my God, I'm too expensive. And that's the moment you have to say, no, I'm worth my prices. The service I give is exceptional. It's bar none, the best you will receive. And if that's not in your budget, that's okay. I totally understand. And you have to have the guts and and the conviction to say that and be okay with it before you step backwards and say, oh no, she says I'm too expensive. I should lower my prices. Don't do that. Yeah. Solid advice right there. That's for sure. Probably more than you wanted, but there you go. (laughs) I'll take it. I love it. All right, Michelle, where can people find you if they're looking for you online? Okay, so it's easy to find me, Michelle Solentano. Michelle with one L. I'm on Facebook. One L. I was going to specify that. Yep. Yeah, one L. Instagram, Michelle Solentano Photographer. You can absolutely find me on Portrait Masters under the Family Posing class. And really, guys, my blood, sweat, and tears and everything I can possibly give you is packed into probably 24, 25 hours of education. So if you're scared of family portraits, don't be. I'll hold your hand the whole way. And people can email me. You know, I'm open to questions. It might take me a couple of days to get back to you if after this 100 people email me, (laughs) if that many people listen to me. (laughs) But thank you so much, Nikki. I just want to say I love listening to the podcast. After the Tabitha Coffee one, I went and bought her book. Jay Mayhew just moved me beyond words. I tune in, I listen to them, and I just enjoy your candor and your openness with your guests. So thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being such a great guest. I think this is the longest episode I've ever done. And yikes, I just didn't want to cut you. Like, I could keep going. Seriously. So thank you for being just like such an amazing energy and just so much wisdom and Yeah. And just for being so humble and sharing everything. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the door's open. Come to Arizona, girl. I know. I totally want to. Bring the kids too. (laughs) I'm like, I might leave them. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless their little hearts. All right, Michelle, we will chat soon. All right. Thanks, Nikki. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Portrait System Podcast. If you like what you heard, we would really love for you to leave us a five-star review either on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And I really, really want to encourage you to head over to SueBriceEducation.com. Over there, you can find all of the education you need to become a successful photographer. It's only $35 and there are over 1,000 on-demand educational videos on things like posing, lighting, styling, retouching, shooting, marketing, sales, business, and self-value. There's also the 12-week startup program that I love. And there are posing downloads, lighting downloads. I mean, truly everything to help make you not only a better photographer, but to make you more money. Once again, that's SueBriceEducation.com.